Redis is an in-memory database that persists to disk. Redis is commonly used as an object cache for web applications. Applications are composed of caches and databases. A cache typically stores the data in memory, and a database typically stores the data on disk. Memory has significantly faster access time, but is more expensive and is volatile, meaning that if the computer that is holding that piece of data in memory goes offline, the data will be lost. When a user makes a request to load their personal information, the server will try to load that data from a cache. If the cache does not contain the user's information, the server will go to the database to find that information. Alvin Richards is Chief Product Officer with Redis Labs, and he joins the show to discuss how Redis works. We explore different design patterns for making Redis high availability or for using it as a volatile cache on a single node. And we talk through the read and write path for Redis data. Full disclosure, Redis Labs is a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Alvin Richards, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you for inviting me along today. We're going to talk about Redis today, and in order to talk about Redis, we need to talk about caching, because Redis is most commonly used, at least among the people I talk to, for caching. Why do applications need caching? That's a great question. So, yeah, absolutely correct. Most people think of Redis as a cache, and that's how they first come across it. And the reason they're looking for a cache is the round-trip cost of accessing their data and then materializing that data back into their service or into their web application. Typically, there's a big round trip to go to your traditional database. That data may not be in memory, so it has to go to disk. And therefore, you have a very long latency in order to be able to service the information that is required for your code to do what it's doing. And web development is often built around objects. So if you think about object-oriented programming, you have users, you have comments, you have shopping cart data. And... If we're building around objects, we want our cache to think in terms of objects as well. Describe how an object cache is used in modern application development. It kind of comes down to how you think about the objects in your application code. So if it's in Java, you've probably got a hash, or in Python, you've got a dict. You've got some notion of some organization of data around the business object or the domain object you're manipulating, whether that is a shopping cart or comments or something else. Typically, if you're getting this from a relational database, you may have to do a query that joins lots of data together. Or if you're going to a JSON store like Mongo, you may be able to pull this out of a single JSON document. So you go through this process of getting it into your database into a form that your code is now manipulating. And the way that you'd use a cache is to take that data in the way that you're manipulating it and either store that in a cache like Redis as a binary blob, or you could use any of the other constructs that Redis offers, for example, hashes, lists, sets, sorted sets, in order to be able to manipulate that data inside the cache rather than having the round trip to the database. So an object cache is in memory, which is faster than disk, but it's often more expensive or it's volatile. That's why we don't just do everything in memory. So how do we decide what we want in memory in our cache versus the things that we want on disk? So it's a good question. I mean, if I take a step back, the bigger question is what is memory? And some of the advances that have occurred recently, and if you look at, for example, Intane's Optane Persistent DC Memory, essentially you've got a form factor that looks like DRAM. It's got the speed and access time of DRAM, but if you turn off the power and turn the power back on, the data's still there. And so the nature of memory being dynamic is going to be changing and evolving over the next five, 10 years. 
And so we're going to be moving away from a paradigm that uh, data in DRAM is is dynamic and it's ephemeral to data in memory is now persistent. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean it's reliable because if you lose the whole computer, then you still lost everything. So you need to have multiple copies or replicas of the data. But what it does mean is the way that you think of memory is going to change. Now, you asked the question, how do you choose what data should be in cache and what should be on disk? Well, ultimately, everything needs to be on a persistent store. We use disk as the term for persistent store, but as we just said, memory can now be persistent. What you really want from an object cache is the ability to evict out the least frequently used data under some policy. So the data that you're accessing most frequently is in the cache. And in the case where you go to the cache, it's not there. You still have the persistent copy sitting in your traditional database or storage system. So if I'm writing a web application, there's this problem of needing to access my data in the fastest fashion possible. But I often don't know what is the fastest route to my data because sometimes it's in a cache, sometimes it's on disk, sometimes it might be in a different cache. We have the notion of the cache hierarchy where you have different speed of access times with different caches. So if my data is not in a cache, then I'm going to want to go to disk and I'm going to want to get it from a database. As a programmer, do I have to write logic to defer to disk in the cases where I am not going to hit in the cache? Or does the cache take care of going to the database and figuring out whether to go to disk? So I think the simple answer is ultimately as the application developer, you don't want to and you shouldn't need to care. What you want is the best access to that data with the least amount of latency. And so there's a class of developers where there are frameworks like Spring that will encapsulate the logic of, I'll go to the cache, and if it's not in the cache, I'll go to the database and materialize the data that way. So there's a class of frameworks that alleviate the application developer from that responsibility. Now, with uh, great power comes great responsibility. So you kind of have to know some of the fundamentals of what's going on. At the other end of the spectrum, there are many classes of applications where you absolutely care about the minutia of the millisecond in order to execute the business case. So for example, I am bidding on a Google AdWord. I've got about 75 milliseconds in order to place my bid. And so, therefore, the direct control of the cache and what you get from where is a very key design point in those use cases. And so, I think the case is that the developer needs to be aware of the trade-offs they're making in terms of simplicity of their code versus the ability to directly control an outcome. But ultimately, at the end of the day, uh, the simplest form of using a cache is it's transparent to you. Many developers who are working with JavaScript-based systems are using MongoDB as their database layer. How would you contrast the usage and the design of Redis with a database like MongoDB? So MongoDB is very well suited to languages where you want to ultimately materialize that data in a JSON form. And you can see from Java or Python how you can take some of the native data structures and represent that in JSON. And so MongoDB provides a great way to store JSON data in a reliable way it has certain scalability features, and it has a powerful query language. These are all great attributes of a modern database. But ultimately, the architecture of MongoDB is, it has the notion that data is stored on disk. So if you request that data, it first has to be shuffled into memory, then it can be manipulated in memory, and if that data has been changed, it then has to be shuffled back to disk. 
ultimately that all takes time and you know what we have seen in terms of the industry we've gone from sort of users dictating behavior and scale to machines dictating speed and scale and as a consequence it means that even with a database with mongodb with its scaling capabilities it's still not able to surface those requests for data in those very high volumes or low latency that's required for certain classes of applications and that's why a cache like redis is very prominent and still used in those applications, even if you're using modern classes of databases, because of the speed, the scale, and the performance that Redis can augment those systems. Redis is probably the most widely used object cache, at least in the conversations that I have with with web developers. But it was not the first object cache. It's not the only object cache. How does the design of Redis differ from other object caches? So, I mean, I think fundamentally the design of any system has to take into account the people who will use it. So one of the reasons for the popularity of Redis is it provides a series of data structures that are familiar to any developer. Hashes, lists, sets, sorted sets. And so the developers are already in that mindset. And so when they come to use Redis, they go, look, I've already got this object in a hash. Therefore, I can transpose it into Redis in a very, very simple way. And I'm now manipulating that data structure on the Redis side using commands that are already familiar to me because I'm already using those constructs. And so I think the popularity is that it fits the developer's operational model of how data should work and how data can be manipulated. And so it's a natural fit. If I wind back to the days of relational databases and object relational mapping tools, how you manipulated your data in the code was orders of magnitude different from how it was stored and manipulated within the database, which caused this sort of impedance mismatch. And so the advantage for developers of using Redis is it's it's very natural for them. And that's true, I think, for all of the popular modern technologies is that they've taken the developer as the key persona and tried to surface the developer's needs in order to help them accelerate, solve the problems that they're trying to solve. I'd like to talk through the architecture of Redis because it's quite a good example of modern distributed systems. And Redis can run in a variety of distributed architectures. So you can run Redis as a single node. It's not like, you know, one of these database systems where you necessarily need to be doing some kind of three-phase commit or two-phase commit because it's a cache. And you are planning on, in many setups, you're planning on having cache misses, you know, on, on occasion. You're planning on needing to go to the backup database layer to access your data under some conditions. So it's interesting because you can have Redis setups where you have a single node, you can have setups where you have two nodes, you can have setups where you have a main Redis layer and then a backup layer of redundancy for high availability. So I'd like to talk through some of these different options. And let's start with just the single node option. What are the use cases where I would just want a single node of Redis? That's a good question. So ultimately, Redis is a very, very simple architecture. And this has allowed it to be used in very small-scale caching use cases, like a single node, as well as cases where you've got tens or hundreds of nodes. So ultimately, the architecture of Redis is a single processing and control thread. And so people say Redis is single-threaded. Well, it's easy to think of it as single-threaded. There are other threads doing other activities, but from the consumption of requests coming in, each one is processed in a single atomic fashion. Now, the 
key design point of Redis is any one of those operations has got a well-defined time complexity. So it's known beforehand how many essentially CPU cycles it's going to take to execute. And so this allows for a very sophisticated system to be built with a very dependable and reliable latency. As people will know, you know, if your operation is going to be O1 in time complexity, it means it's it's a very predictable operation. When you've got ON or O log N, then it's going to be a function of your data. And so in a very simple form, Redis provides a very simple way to have a cache that allows you to support the reads and write operations that you need in a very predictable way. And so that allows people to have a great deal of certainty about how that system will behave, not only when they run it in development, but when they run it in production as well. When I think about an object storage system where I'm requesting single objects, I kind of think of just a hash map with just simple put and get operations. But I can imagine there are plenty of scenarios where I would want to get multiple objects out of a cache. Tell me about the read and write paths for doing a single entity read or write and for multiple entity reads and writes. And if we're just talking about the single node of Redis. Yeah. So it'll come down to a number of factors. And those factors will include things like, what is the data structure you want to manipulate? What is the size of the data? So for example, reading a 10 byte string is gonna be a fairly simple operation to execute. Essentially, you take the key, you look up that key's location, you go read the 100 bytes. You could do multiple key reads in a single command to get all of those together. And so there's going to be a cumulative effect of getting all of those key values together before it's returned to the client. But then each one of the data structures that Redis supports is going to have a different complexity associated with it. So for example, in a hash, if I go and get all of the field values, that's going to be at a different cost than, say, just getting one or two values out of that hash. And so that's why a lot of the time we focus on the optimization of each one of those commands and each one of those data structures to ensure that we have the minimum amount of CPU used in order to execute that operation. And the story doesn't change too much when we get to multiple nodes. And we can talk about that uh, a little later in the conversation, because essentially the way that uh, a Redis cluster looks at the world is just a slice of that data. And you're manipulating a key and you're changing the values of that key. And as a consequence, you are going to one of the 10 nodes in order to do that. You don't have to go to all of the nodes in order to find out where that key exists. Why would I want to build a Redis system with multiple nodes? Why wouldn't I just want to use a single node for everything? Well, I mean, multiple nodes are a way in any distributed system to scale out. So at some point, you're going to hit some system constraint. Either you are utilizing all the CPU available for that particular process, or you are out of addressable DRAM. And so the reason for using multiple Redis processes is to explore modern day computing architectures, right? As we know, Intel is slowly increasing the performance of each core, but what they're really doing is giving you lots and lots more cores per processor. And so as a consequence, you need a software architecture that can truly exploit all of the cores. Anybody who's built a multi-threaded system will know that there are all sorts of compromises that you end up having to make with schedulers and so on and so forth. And it's very difficult to fully utilize 24, 48, 96 cores. The beauty of the Redis architecture is that for the most part, you're using a core and a core and a half, and you can fully exploit that. So running multiple Redis processes allows you to fully exploit that computing architecture and therefore getting the most value out of it. So 
what you're trying to do is ensure that you can use all the addressable RAM that's available to you and use all the addressable CPU that's available to you. And the way you do that in a Redis architecture is by running many, many Redis processes. Redis will need to be both sharded and replicated in its most distributed fashion. Could you explain those two terms, sharding and replication, and Describe how they fit into a distributed Redis architecture. Absolutely. So, I mean, sharding and replication to solve two different but related problems. Sharding is the ability to essentially take a data set. I think of an address book where you're going from A to Z. And so sharding is just taking a horizontal partition of that data and then splitting it between processes. So, A to M may be on one processor, N to P on another, Q to Z on a a third. And so you can take a logical horizontal partition of that data and separate it out. And the architecture of Redis means that you can keep on subdividing those partitions or those sharding ranges so that you get finer, finer granularity of ranges and therefore more processes that are running and therefore the ability to exploit more cores. So sharding is a way to scale out to utilize more computing power. That could be CPUs, it could be addressable DRAM. Replication, on the other hand, is a technique to ensure that multiple copies of the data exist. And so why do you need multiple copies of that data? Well, imagine it's Black Friday and you've got your shopping cart and you're about to check out and that computing node where your cache data is being stored has an outage. Either it's because it's lost its network connectivity or the process died or the machine rebooted or the machine just burnt and died because of all the workload of Black Friday. So replication means that multiple copies of that data exist, which means that if one copy disappears, then a second copy is still available. So going back to our Black Friday example, well, if that first node fails where the data is present, then the second copy of the data exists. So to the user, they get redirected to that second copy of the data. And for their user experience, they may see a sort of a slight slowdown, but they haven't lost the contents of their shopping cart. And for that user experience, that's absolutely key because there's nothing worse than trying to check out your shopping basket goes empty. And I'm sure we've all lived through that at various times of our lives where your lovely shopping basket gets emptied out for you. And so you can take that analogy and put it to any use case where even for a cache, you need reliability of that data. That data needs to be in multiple locations within a single data center or even in multiple data centers so that you can survive various business failures and still be able to surface that data through the application or that service correctly and maintain that business continuity. Now, many people who are listening to this podcast episode probably have worked at a company where there was significant caching infrastructure. These people have probably also worked on their own side project where there may or may not have been caching in place. And I think it's fairly common to experience two sides of the caching coin, which is I've got a very simple caching setup and the other side of the coin where I've got a fairly complex caching setup. But I think what most people actually do not see is the process of building out and scaling up that caching infrastructure. The actual process of going through the sharding and replication and dealing with the pain points of having caching infrastructure that is present but not sufficient because a company is scaling up. Tell me about the process of scaling out a Redis cluster. What are the demands that you're going to be seeing where you know I'm going to need to start scaling this thing? And what is the process by which I actually technically scale out my Redis cluster? So that's an 
interesting question. And the answer is a bit complicated because how you do this in open source Redis is different from how you do it in Redis Enterprise. Now, Redis open source has got all the ability to do the sharding and the scale out. It requires a considerable amount of operator effort in order to do that. Inside the architecture of Redis Enterprise, the architecture is, is fundamentally different to allow the seamless scaling out without needing any interruption from the application or the client. And the way we do this architecturally is at the outside rim of a Redis Enterprise cluster is something that we call the proxy. And that's essentially what the client or the application code connects to. Inside that cluster, the proxy understands the current sharding topology, where the data lies. And so it acts as like a router to route that request that came through the client to the right part of the cluster to execute. What this means is as more shards are added or more compute capacity is added, behind the scenes, the data can be resharded and redistributed around that cluster. But the client itself doesn't actually know the location of that data, so the data can be moved transparently around as you scale out. This is not the case in open source. In open source, you actually do need to know the locality of that data in order to be addressing the right part of the cluster. So there are differences between what you can get in pure open source as opposed to what you get in Redis Enterprise. And so typically for a larger organization, even if you start off with a single process, but you know you have a requirement to scale out eventually, then it's simpler to start off with a solution like Redis Enterprise because, as I said, you can add in these additional nodes without requiring any downtime or any changes in your application code. That is possible with open source. It just requires a lot more planning in advance and being very rigorous with your code and how you talk about the data and its location. So with cache technology, you often hear the term cache eviction. And an eviction is where you would check if there is, well, let's say you make a read and there's something that's not in the cache. So you have to go to the database. You go to the database, and you find what you're looking for, and then oftentimes you're going to add that thing that you just looked up in the database to the cache. And when you do this, you sometimes find that, oh, your cache is actually full, and you decide to evict data from the cache in order to make room for this piece of data that you just looked up. Because many times, you know, you look up a piece of data, you know, you decide, okay, probably, you know, this data is going to be looked up again soon. I should add it to the cache. And I'm going to evict some data from my cache in order to make room for this new piece of data. Why wouldn't we just always allocate enough memory for the caching that we need and then just evict data from the cache as we run out of space in the cache. Why do we need to scale up the amount of memory that is available to the cache? So, I mean, the reason for wanting to scale out is essentially to increase the size of your cache data. So let's take a simple example that you're running in the cloud and you've provisioned a particular node from your favorite cloud vendor and there's 14 gig of DRAM. Well, let's say your application is growing over the time and you now need 28 gig of data. Well, if your data set size is now 28 gig, then with your one node, you can only have 14 gigs, so you'll be constantly evicting data. And we'll talk about kind of eviction policy in a second, right? The ability to scale out is now more of that data is now in memory. So what are potential eviction policies? Well, in a product like Redis, there are several built-in eviction policies that will just manage data out on essentially a least frequently used basis. But also from a developer's 
perspective. And so let's bear in mind that the developers have a responsibility here is they'll have some understanding of their use case of how long the data needs to be retained in memory. So the developer can decide how long that key should live in memory. It could be 10 seconds, it could be a minute, it could be an hour. They get to define for that particular key that they're manipulating what that policy should be. Thirdly, in Redis Enterprise, there is a technology called Redis on Flash. And essentially what this does is it combines DRAM with Flash or SSD or NVMe drives to keep the most frequently used data in DRAM and the least frequently data in the flash drives or SSDs so that you can essentially reduce the cost overhead of storing everything in DRAM with the knowledge that if you are going to SSD, then you're going to have a slower latency for that first access to that object. So there are several strategies you can use, but ultimately, if you want to scale out and have more data with that low latency access, then you need some way to aggregate computing resources together. And that's where the techniques of sharding come into place. And that's the motivation for running multiple Redis processes across multiple compute nodes. So let's say my awesome website is suddenly slammed with traffic and in order to accommodate that growing traffic, I decide to scale up my caching infrastructure on the fly. I want to grow my Redis cluster. When Redis scales up and it has to do a resharding process, is that going to degrade performance? What does Redis do in the middle of a resharding and a scale-up operation? So that's a really good question. And so the answer is kind of involved, but let me try and talk you through that. So let's say you've run out of compute capacity. So what you do is you provision a new piece of compute. It's got more memory. It's got some cores. And the first thing is that's in, introduced into the cluster. And what Redis Enterprise will do, it'll say, great, there is more compute resources available. Now, when I start resharding, I can take a key range and then split that into two. That means I can now decide which parts of those key ranges can then be migrated to other compute servers in order to spread that workload out. And so as that is happening, obviously what we'll need to do is you'll need to copy that data from node A to node B. And as you're doing that, there's going to be some network consumed doing that, and there's going to be some CPU cycles consumed doing that. It's very low impactful because each Redis process inside Redis Enterprise is limited to 25 gig of data. So there's a very small amount of data that needs to be moved. And as we talked about earlier with the proxy that's at the front of the cluster, at the point that data has been moved and both sides agree that they have a coherent copy of that data, it then requires just a simple change in the proxy to now reroute those requests to the new location of the data. So it's a very low impact operation for the cluster to automatically reshuffle the data to take advantage of the new compute capacity that's been made available. When we talk about distributed systems and we talk about scalability in a modern context, it's common to discuss Kubernetes. And Kubernetes is pretty useful for managing distributed systems infrastructure. Does Kubernetes make it easier to, for those who don't know, Kubernetes is a container orchestration system for managing your different containers and so essentially managing your different servers. Does Kubernetes make it easier to manage a distributed Redis cluster? I think Kubernetes is one of the many ways to orchestrate. So if I if I take a step back, we've got customers who will take our software raw, deploy it raw, either on VMs or on bare metal, and will manage that cluster on their own behalf. And so that means that 
they take on the responsibility for provisioning and orchestration or the failure modes themselves. If you take on a orchestration framework like, you know, Pivotal Cloud Foundry or OpenShift or Kubernetes, then those frameworks supplement not just the provisioning, but also the maintenance of those clusters. And so, for example, on Kubernetes, we build into our operator the ability to do auto-recovery. So if you lose containers as part of that deployment, then we can automatically do the restart and resync and reestablish the state and the quorum of the cluster automatically. And so I think those frameworks greatly reduce the administrative burden of dealing with the distributed system and allow for much more autonomous deployment. That doesn't mean that you have eliminated that role of the operator. The operator is still key in terms of capacity planning and understanding the hotspots and optimizing the deployment. But the day-to-day keeping the lights on can be automated to a greater extent than was possible in other orchestration frameworks. And so I think the simplification of these big distributed systems is the advantage that these orchestration frameworks provide. The company that you work at is Redis Labs, and you make products and support around Redis. Redis is open source. What do people buy from you? So Redis is a great open source project that's been going since about 2010. The original motivation of the founders of Redis Labs was to build a managed cloud service that was enterprise-grade for Redis. So that included things like failover, automatic scale-out through sharding, geo-replication so you can replicate data across data centers. And so as a company, we started off as a managed cloud service. And as our business has evolved, we carry on selling a managed cloud service and all the major cloud vendors. But we also sell the the raw Redis enterprise software for our large customers who maybe have regulatory or compliance needs to be able to run this in-house rather than on a public cloud. But our experience of running Redis as a cloud service has allowed us to bake in and optimize a whole bunch of things into that code base to allow any organization to run this at scale successfully through our Redis Enterprise product. So what are people buying? They're either buying a managed service for Redis or they're buying Redis Enterprise that they can deploy and deploy on-premise within their own data centers. So when people come to you When they come to Redis Labs and they say, okay, my Redis is slow or it's having lots of cache misses, I don't understand why, what's the most common thing that they're doing wrong? So typically, I mean, for most people, the deployment of Redis is very simple. It works out of the box as is. The challenge will become of like any tool is, how are you using it? And this goes back to some of the things we we talked about earlier, which is time complexity. So for example, if I'm navigating a list of a billion elements, that's an expensive operation, right? So if I'm trying to navigate a billion element lists thousands of times a second, that's gonna be expensive for any technology to perform. And so, Typically, the combination of issues that we most normally see is obviously there's not enough DRAM to support the data set. And as a consequence, data is being evicted and therefore data is being evicted and constantly reloaded. That's a fairly simple thing to solve. The more complex situations to solve are how the system is being used to solve the business case. And You know, fortunately, Redis has been out long enough that there are lots of good, well-defined patterns in blogs and documentation that says, look, if you want to do a leaderboard, here's a couple of strategies for doing a leaderboard. 
here's a couple of strategies for doing rate limiting and so on and so forth. And so for the, the larger development community out there, there are blueprints that they can use and be successful with out of the box. But there's also a set of tooling. We recently launched a product called Redis Insight, which is a free tool to use for developers and DevOps. And what it will do is it will show you uh, uh, pictorially inside your Redis cluster and what, what data is there and how it's organized. But it will also show you which keys are hot, which keys are being accessed the most, which operations are the slowest. And it'll start giving you the ammunition to actually understand and how to optimize the system yourself by looking at some of these key indicators. So if I was looking at the indicators from the insights, the Redis insights, how could I translate that information into something actionable? Like what would be a common thing to look for that I could say, okay, now it's time to I don't know, scale up or, or like have fewer write operations. Yeah, I mean, how I would approach it is, you know, typically where I start is looking at the slow log. The slow log will tell you all of the operations that are taking a long time. Now, bear in mind, as we said earlier, every Redis process is essentially single threaded in that a request will come in and Redis will execute that from beginning to end, return the results before it now accepts the next command to process. So if you've got a command that's taking 400 milliseconds, that means anything that's queued up behind it has got to wait 400 milliseconds before it can execute. So, you know, the first question is, should that command be taking 400 milliseconds? Is it the right command to be executed? And if the answer to that is yes, then one strategy is to scale out so that you've got the data distributed across more Redis processes, and so therefore you've got fewer bottlenecks. But for the most part, when you start looking at the slow log, people realize that there is a process or a thread that's running and executing a command that's either inefficient or doesn't need to be executed at the frequency it's been run at. And so that helps people to then look at their architecture and their implementation to make sure that they're running the right commands on the right data structures with the right time complexity. And so that's one way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is hotkeys, right? You may have a particular counter or a list that lots of processes are, are constantly either reading or making changes to. And so you then have a bottleneck around a particular key or a small set of keys out of the billions you may be storing. Again, this may come back to an implementation or an architectural choice that you've made in that development process. So both the slow logs and the hot keys are a great first indicator of the next questions you should be asking yourself and the operators and the development team associated with that. How you then solve that may be a combination of scaling out. It may be a combination of making some data structure changes or some implementation changes in order to better or improve the parallelization of your application. Are there any newer patterns or use cases for Redis that you've seen recently? Yeah, I think that the primary shift has been, I mean, traditionally, if you ask anybody what is Redis, they'll say it's an in-memory cache. The shift that we've started to see is people using Redis as their primary database. So that's not just use cases. That's a sort of paradigm shift of I use this class of technology to solve problem X to now solving a very different class of problems. Some of that is also what we've been doing to extend Redis. So uh, traditionally, Redis has had a simple set of data structures like lists, strings, sets, sorted sets. What we've been doing at Redis Labs is to extend those data structures to incorporate things like full text search, time series data, graph data, JSON data. And that further extends the set of data structures and therefore the use cases where Redis gets used. And so you'll see Redis being used in gaming for things like, you know, leaderboards, for people who are doing 
APIs to do rate limiting. In finance, that can be things like credit scoring and risk analysis. In telcos, that could be um, and knowing user provisioning limits when services are being requested. And so the general theme is Redis gets used when you're either dealing with a high volume of data that's changing quickly, or you need to have very low levels of latency that are very, very consistent to be able to meet the operating demands of those use cases. It's quite interesting. I can imagine if you need to model Redis as something like a graph database, when a graph database has edges. So if you would need to model Redis as a graph database, you're going to need to store additional information that gives you the necessary metadata to make graph database traversal. I would say the same thing for a full text search. So what kinds of systems do you need to build to augment a, a Redis system with something like full text search? Good question. So, you know, what we found over time is people were using native data structures, the list sets and hashes in order to solve some of these domain problems. And so what we did with search and time series and graph is to essentially encapsulate those needs into fundamental structures within side Redis so that you didn't have to combine multiple data structures in order to achieve your goal. The Redis data structure would actually do that on your behalf. And so full text search is a great one where there are certain applications where you need to traverse a lot of data very quickly with all of the features that you need in a full text search query. You need stop words, you need antonyms, you need all of this other kind of great stuff. But you also need to look at a lot of data quickly in a very low latency. So what we've done is combine the needs of each one of those data structures and optimize it in the reddest way to get low latency. You know, for example, Graph is a great example of using the Graph Blast library in order to store sparse matrices and then use a form of matrix uh, manipulation in order to be able to do those traversals of those nodes and edges. And so we've combined the kind of needs for those data structures along with the characteristics of Redis in order to, I think, provide a very unique way to process that information in a way that makes sense to those use cases. I want to begin to wrap up. You mentioned hardware earlier on. One thing that I think is interesting about hardware is if we could reduce the cost of memory or if we could improve the reliability of in-memory systems, we could have much faster infrastructure and I mean, in some sense, this is an inevitability because, I mean, it continues to happen. It's one of these Moore's Law-like trends where you just see improvements in memory infrastructure. Can you give me a status check on impending hardware changes that could push us to rethink how we do caching and other in-memory operations? So, I mean, let's do a thought experiment. So how does the problem change if you have infinite CPU cores or infinite amounts of memory that's persistent? And I think that's kind of the path that we're going down. We're going to be seeing a single compute node with 1,024 cores. You're going to see it with, you know, tens of terabytes of DRAM, with persistent memory, you, you already can get 12 terabytes of persistent memory in a server. And so I kind of think the way that we're going is everything's ultimately going to be in memory. And that memory, for the most part, is going to appear to be persistent. Now, you need much more than just persistence. You need replication to be able to deal with the ultimately the durability of data. You have to survive various modes of failure from single compute servers or racks or data centers so that you've got many survivable copies of that data. But ultimately, you need a 
software architecture that can exploit that hardware footprint. And I think that's kind of why Redis is uniquely situated, which is it's got an architecture that's already optimized just to deal with memory. And the fact that that memory is now persistent is an advantage because it doesn't have to shuffle data between disk and memory in order to take advantage of it. It can already take advantage of cores. So by running lots and lots of Redis processes, you can exploit those computing architectures. And the fact that memory is now persistent means that you don't have to shuffle data between these different tiers in order to actually effectively manipulate it. And I think ultimately that's where the compute landscape is taking us. I think if you've got an architecture that can't exploit those inherent changes in our computing landscape, then you'll always end up with something that's inefficient or wasteful of resources or simply can't exploit those hardware that's available to it. And, you know, there's many great examples of how we have done that in the past. If you think about virtual machines, it's all about how do I drive better utilization? I think Redis is a great solution for driving that utilization for not just your caching needs for data, but also for your persistent needs of data. Last question. What can the field of computer science learn from the field of photography? The great thing about photography is being around considerably longer than computer science. It has evolved in bursts. And if you think about where we started with plate cameras to modern day 100 megapixel cameras, it shows that the rate of change can accelerate rapidly over time. And so I think what we can assume from computing is there's going to be orders of magnitude improvement in performance and capacity and the ability to represent the world around us in, the, in our compute architecture as we have seen in plate cameras to digital photography. I think the real question is, have we built the right frameworks and the processes and the technology that we can build and manipulate that, not just in a reliable and robust way, but also in an ethical way and in a robust and reasonable way that we don't penalize particular communities or particular geolocations based on our ability to look at data more efficiently and therefore cause you know fragmentation in each one of those communities and those geographies so i think you know ultimately we have great tools and great capacities at our hands that'll be in orders of magnitude better down the road are we responsible enough to be able to use that in a reasonable and ethically viable way Alvin Richards, thank you for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for the invite. <laughs>